If there's one thing I've learned in doing a podcast about taboos, it's that our beliefs about things can cause way more damage than the things themselves. I mean, this is true about everything cultural when you get right down to it. Clothing is an easy example. If you wear an old t-shirt to a wedding, you're gonna cause some damage. People will be offended that you didn't think this event was worth dressing up for. You might even be shunned by other wedding guests and your relationships with them might suffer. It's not because the t-shirt is inherently harmful. It's because our cultural beliefs about what you wear to a wedding don't allow for ratty old t-shirts. But if they did, poof, no damage. And there are certainly weddings where it's okay to wear a t-shirt. They're in the minority, but they happen. And the results of those weddings are identical to the results of black tie weddings. People get married, life goes on, nothing explodes. The same act with a different belief equals less damage. The same is true when it comes to relationships and the effects are much more dramatic because most of a relationship comes down to how the person makes you feel and vice versa. And cultural beliefs about what is and isn't okay are magnified. Like, here's an example. Say you watch an episode of a new show by yourself. In some relationships, that would be a non-event. Cool, glad you enjoyed it. In others, that would rate on the level of emotional betrayal. How could you watch that without me? We always check out new shows together. Now I never get to see that show. Damage has been done. Now, I'm not saying that either of these scenarios is right or wrong. I personally love dressing up for weddings, and my fiancé and I have a whole slate of shows that we only watch together and others we watch alone. But my point is that it's the beliefs, not the acts themselves, that do the damage. And beliefs can be changed. So what if we could change our beliefs about infidelity? I mean, stepping outside of a monogamous relationship isn't harmful in itself. I mean, as long as you're not putting yourself at risk of disease or violence or anything. It's the beliefs surrounding the act. The belief that the act constitutes the betrayal of your partner. That belief leads to dishonesty, secrecy, hurt feelings, sometimes even emotional trauma. Those beliefs are why infidelity is the leading cause of breakups and divorce. After all, if you didn't break up after your partner cheated, you'd be seen as weak, deluded, a total sucker. There are those pesky beliefs again. And again, I'm not saying these beliefs are right or wrong. I'm also not saying that you can just decide to change your beliefs willy-nilly, and you may not even want to. But it's at least important to recognize what your beliefs are when it comes to what constitutes cheating and what the right response should be. Because most of us just assume our beliefs about infidelity are the same as everyone else's. And by the time we realize they aren't, it's already too late. I'm Ashley Hamer, and this is Taboo Science, the podcast that answers the questions you're not allowed to ask.
Before we get into why and how people break the rules of monogamy, it's worth asking, what's so great about monogamy anyway? I mean, if evolution is all about ensuring that your genes survive into the future, it seems like the best bet, for males anyway, is to spread your seed around and have as many babies with as many mates as possible. You'd think that limiting yourself to one mate would be limiting your genetic success. But genetic success isn't just about quantity. It's also about quality. If your offspring dies because you were out being the town bicycle, your genes aren't going anywhere. Likewise, if there aren't a lot of mates to be had, you stepping out on your boo risks you never getting another mate again. Even so, scientists estimate that less than 10% of mammal species practice any form of monogamy. It even turns out that birds, who we once held up as the pinnacle of pair bonding for life, often end up having at least one offspring in their nest that isn't related to the father genetically. Oops. Humans, of course, are monogamous. At least, that's how the story goes. But how monogamous are we really? We're not too bad uh, compared to other members of the ape family, say, but there's a significant minority who will report under anonymous conditions that they've had an emotional, romantic, or sexual online, some level of involvement with someone outside of an agreement to be exclusive with their partner. I'm Lucia O'Sullivan. I'm a social psychologist by training and a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of New Brunswick in Canada. Some say that our lukewarm success record on staying with one partner forever, that's by design. There are some good, great, in fact, evolutionary arguments for how we're not really designed to be great at monogamy. It certainly serves a purpose, but so does non-monogamy. Um, more people, more resources, more options, more support in some respects, uh, more interests, more offspring. You know, all sorts of arguments along that line, as you can imagine. But for modern society, we have in most cultures vast majority of cultures, I think it's the high 90s, 96% of them indicate that a monogamous relationship is the standard, which tells you it serves a purpose. Even societies where multiple wives are A-OK, which is most societies, actually, the majority of marriages are between just two people. But that's what scientists call social monogamy. That is, how we set up our living arrangements, not necessarily who we sleep with. As Dr. O'Sullivan mentioned, there's at least a significant minority who have broken that social contract from time to time. And that number is probably higher in reality. That's because it's really tough to ask people whether they've cheated on their partner and get an honest answer. It's not just that it's a sensitive question that they might not answer truthfully. The whole concept of cheating is kind of nebulous. We realized very quickly we couldn't just ask people have you ever had sex with someone else while you've been married? Because not, of course, so many people aren't married now. Um, and it's really not just about sex. And that was a very important discovery in the field is that there are many levels of being, oh, I hate to use the word unfaithful, but that's exactly what it is. It's a violation of an agreement you have with a partner that you will not be involved with other people. 
there are many ways in which that can occur. It's not just, you know, the genital contact form. It can be like a very intense connection with someone else, spending a lot of time telling them private information, you know, sharing your most important memories with them, sharing with them things that you don't tell your partner or online forms where it may not even be someone that you know, but, you know, it's a sexual or arousal kind of scenario with a person who's not your partner. And if that violates in some way the agreement you have with a partner, if you have one at all, not everyone does, then we count that as infidelity. I'm curious, why don't you like the word unfaithful? I think there's there's so much moral undertone to a lot of the talk, you know, cheating and unfaithful. And we have learned very clearly, have learned that there are many complicated stories about how people get involved. And very often, they don't mean to get involved with someone outside of their relationship. So sometimes it's a situation where they're working late at night, night after night with someone, they're exhausted, but this person is funny or keeps them motivated. And then they find that they're being drawn toward them. And when we think of the word attraction, especially if you think about it in terms of like magnetic uh, magnets, it is quite literally at being drawn towards somebody, even if you don't necessarily want to be. And so our research is really focused on what are the conditions around that and who is able to resist? Because I think, I don't think so much that this is something that we can really say only people who aren't committed or aren't really in love or aren't satisfied in a relationship do, because we find that Infidelity occurs in all types of relationships. In fact, the quality of the relationship is a really poor predictor of infidelity. So in many cases, it is circumstances. It's being caught unaware, really spending more time or letting yourself think about or hanging out with someone who ultimately you are drawn toward. So at first you think, oh, it's just flirting. And then there's some expression of attraction and then it may or may not be reciprocated and it becomes a slippery slope. You know, there are many different points where things start to become inevitable. The trick is for people to understand where those trip lines are. Did your stomach just turn in knots like mine did? Seriously, this is possibly the scariest thing I've ever heard on this podcast. And I've run an episode on cannibalism. I mean, she makes it sound like infidelity is just inevitable. Want a great relationship? A happy marriage? Till death do you part? Haha, sucker, it's never going to happen. Ugh. Okay, just take a second to breathe. It turns out that infidelity is not inevitable. And if we want to avoid it, we can just take a page from the people who are actually really successful at staying monogamous. Scientists have done research on them. You know, because they're mutants. Oh, God, I have to stop. The research is oh, such an interesting line of research, because at first we were just looking at how do we explain infidelity and who is reporting it and what do they think are the conditions in which, you know, it's more acceptable versus less. 
But then we decided to switch gears entirely and, and look at who's able to maintain exclusivity if they have that agreement and if that's something they want. Because in many ways, that's the harder thing to do. You cannot imagine going through life and never, ever interacting with someone attractive or someone who finds you attractive. We spend far more time with the people we work with than we spend with our partners. And so given all the circulating we do in that social sense, the odds are stacked against us in many respects of finding someone attractive and being in a situation in which you express that or they express it to you. So we know from our research that the people who manage to avoid engaging in some kind of intimate contact with someone else have strategies that really work very well. One is they derogate, we call it derogate the alternative. So that attractive person who is looking so great and isn't your partner um, focusing on aspects about them and doing whatever you can to figure out what they are that are unattractive is helpful. Okay, so tip number one, think of all the ways that pretty person is probably hiding some huge red flags. Like maybe they have an unhealthily close relationship with their mom. Maybe they're allergic to your pet. Maybe they load the dishwasher weird and put ice cubes in their wine and will only listen to Zydeco music. You don't know. You only see them at the coffee shop. Definitely focusing on your partner and what you get out of the relationship and what you would lose, as you would expect. Number two, remember that you're with your partner for a reason. Think back to the things that made you fall in love with them and the things you're looking forward to doing with them in the future. If you give in to this temptation, you might lose access to those dimples you love so much. And that ironic trip to the Creation Museum you two have been planning to live tweet? Not anymore, bucko. Also really thinking in terms of how you might suffer ultimately if you violate that agreement. Tip number three, think of it in a ruthlessly selfish way. What if you end this stable, long-term, happy relationship because you couldn't resist a pretty face and that pretty face ends up being just a fling? Then what? You're alone. You're back at square one and back on Tinder. Tinder. Dr. O'Sullivan has some great tips, doesn't she? Well, don't get too comfortable. Having said that, so many new relationships begin before their former one has ended. It is something most people won't even tell you about, but my job, I feel, is almost like hacking into people's private lives. So when you get them to pry apart what has happened and how this relationship formed versus that, you find that the timeline often overlaps. So <laughs> new person in your life sometimes entered the scene before last person exited officially or formally we're we're very reluctant to be alone also but also you know it's it's understanding that there are attractive alternatives out there sometimes a relationship really does need to end yeah i know it does but i don't have to like it of course another scenario that could totally happen is that someone steals your partner 
There are studies on this. Scientists call it mate poaching, which I love because it makes me think of women hiding in the bushes on the savanna in six-inch heels and bodycon dresses, their eyeshadow shimmering in the equatorial sun as they lie in wait for their chance to strike. Yeah, mate poaching is a fun area. If you can get people to feel confident enough to report what has really happened in their relationship, we find that people who are mate poachers, that is, you've stolen a partner from someone who you knew was in a relationship with someone else, they tend to be people who have higher levels of what we call sociosexuality. So that's more permissive attitudes generally about the rules around sex and intimacy and monogamy and so on. But we also know that in general, relationships that have begun from a mate poaching scenario where one or both partners were taken from a, an existing relationship tend to have poorer quality. And we think that's because they just might be a little less committed or a little less invested in relationships generally. Plus, they happen to know that their partner is someone who they got from luring them away or, you know, allowed themselves to be lured away depending on the circumstances. So that can sort of undermine confidence in a relationship. It takes a while to sort of overcome <laughs> that issue. And we were wondering because in some of our research on infidelity, we found that there were definitely serial people who went from relationship to relationship to relationship based on stealing someone away and then hooking up with them and then stealing someone else away. And so we began to look at mate poaching in that regard. And so certainly the, the more serial you are in your mate poaching, the worse your relationships tend to be. But having said that, we did find that people who had just one past occasion of mate poaching didn't necessarily and didn't often have as bad a relationship as people who were serially connected, you know, end one, start another, you know, in the way that we're supposed to do. And we think that's because those one-offs might be examples of really stumbling across the person you were supposed to be with and exiting a relationship that is just not right but if you make a serial habit of it, no, your relationships tend to be much poorer. But as we've established, infidelity isn't always about someone stealing your man. Sometimes your man or woman or non-binary bae steps out on their own. And while we just talked about how many temptations we face and how hard it can be to maintain monogamy ourselves... Well, when it comes to what our partners do, we aren't quite so understanding. Well, the reasons for infidelity get a little confusing, uh, particularly when people are explaining their own infidelity versus their partners. So if they've been in a situation where a partner has cheated, they will say it's because that person is a jerk, <laughs> is horrible. There's something sort of dispositionally wrong with them. You know, they, they can't be trusted, that they're slime balls, gold diggers, you know, all these horrible terms. But when we explain our own infidelity, we will say, well, it's because I was in a situation in which 
it was impossible to avoid. Right. It's like even drivers, right? Like, oh, well, I was speeding because I was late to my meeting, but that person's speeding because they're a bad driver. Right. We call it the fundamental attribution error, which is a really fancy term for just saying, essentially, we give ourselves a break and we assume the worst of others. For bad things, oddly, for good things, we do the opposite. We think, oh, I got a great grade because, you know, I'm so fabulous. But anyway, when it comes to infidelity, which we all acknowledge is frowned upon behavior, we tend to explain away our own behavior in situational terms. Um, We did one fun study where we looked at what are the circumstances in which you could be more forgiving even of a partner who had cheated And we found that people definitely varied. Same behavior, we could control for that. But if the partner was drinking heavily, it was somehow more excusable. If it was an ex, it's sort of, we had two groups. One who was like, that's the worst scenario, absolutely unacceptable. And another group that said, well, you know, they have a history and therefore it's a little more understandable. We definitely do find that there are circumstances where we can tolerate it a bit better, even in a partner. When we were really breaking down what people consider to be infidelity, one thing that emerged for a minority, but a notable minority, was that a partner even masturbating, having like sexual arousal without you in the room, or maybe you're in the room, but not with you, you're the partner, there's a number of people who consider that to be unfaithful, you know, infidelity. And so we realized it wasn't so much about connecting with someone else. For a lot of people, they define it in terms of not finding me the be all and end all for attraction and arousal and all those good things. Such a variation in tolerance for that. I, th- I think that's fascinating. This brings us to one of the great big takeaways of this episode. Think flashing lights, air horns, confetti cannons, the whole thing. That takeaway is the rules of monogamy vary from person to person. What one person thinks of as harmless fun, another considers the immediate end of a relationship. And the only way you know what your partner's rules are, and the only way they know yours, is to talk about it. We realized early on we had to actually ask, have you ever had a a real discussion about monogamy or exclusivity? Because at first we were saying, you know, are you in a monogamous relationship? And they'd say, oh, yes, yes, yes. But then when we learned to ask, well, have you actually talked about that? Has that been an explicit discussion? We found that the minority of people have had that discussion. And when we went further and asked, what have you talked about? We found that they had often had sort of a a very vague agreement, like, oh, we're a couple now kind of discussion, but not about what was acceptable and what was not. And this was important because there were so many variations in terms of infidelity that we were finding so little consensus in what people think is acceptable and not. So for one person, any genital contact, absolutely out, but everything else is, you know, tolerable. For another person, even their partner looking at porn where they're sort of aroused by someone they'd never even meet 
in real life or going for lunch with a colleague or any affection between someone who's not them, the partner, was considered uh, a violation. So we realized that very little concordance in what people think their partner <laughs> understands to be monogamy. That brings me to a question I've been really interested in asking because polyamory and, you know, ethical non-monogamy, the way they, there are a lot of words for it, but for, for people who have agreements where they do date and sleep with more than one person, it seems like they have a lot of that figured out. I mean, I, I've know people in that community and some people have entire like Google Docs full of things that are and are not allowed. Are there things that you think people in monogamous relationships can learn from people in non-monogamous relationships? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the primary myths people have in our field is that people in non-monogamous, consensually non-monogamous relationships have poorer relationships and they don't. The research is very consistent that they have very strong relationships. And what I think is something we could learn from them for those who are in monogamous <laughs> or supposedly monogamous relationships is that by insisting on monogamy and particularly a strict version of it, you're introducing a whole range of deal breakers into the relationships. So there's no flex. And essentially, if a person becomes involved with someone other than you, it is usually under circumstances of secrecy. And that constitutes a violation of trust. That is far more damaging, of course. That's really the damaging part is that they did something behind your back, essentially, and try to hide it or, you know, maybe confessed it. You know, there's, there's usually a big emotional scene and it's the number one reason for breakup and divorce and, you know, relationship discord. But it's not so much that your partner had the urge to kiss someone else at a party. It's the fact that they did it in this surreptitious way. So consensual non-monogamous relationships are very clear on what are the boundaries, what's acceptable, what is not. And they tend to have enough flex in their agreements that there's less violation of you know, a, a sharp standard because they're able to talk about permutations in a way that most people cannot. And more to the point, they're explicit about it. Like they talk about what is acceptable and why it is and what is tolerable and what is unacceptable and why not. And as opposed to this sort of vague understanding that we'll all know exactly what our partner thinks is acceptable or not. You know, there's 101 ways we could be breaking the rules because there are no rules. There's no nothing explicit for us to rely on. But it's not just people in the polyamory community who have their boundaries figured out. And we know that gay men tend to have relationships where there's much more likely to have a flexible approach to relationships with others. So their focus is on the commitment to each other, the love relationship and separating that somewhat from the sexual component. That's 
far more likely to be verbalized in ways that the majority, the heterosexual majority, do not do, typically. P.S. Dr. O'Sullivan said that it doesn't seem to be the same with women in relationships with women. So, okay, we've established that you should talk with your partner about what each of you do and do not consider a violation of your monogamy agreement. But that can be hard. I mean, most of us just have unchecked assumptions about what is and isn't cheating. And if you've never thought about what they are, how exactly are you expected to put them into a list? Luckily, there are experts who have thought about this. PleasureMechanics.com is an educational resource for sex and relationships. And they've got an impressively thorough worksheet you can use to guide the monogamy discussion with your partner. You can find a link in the show notes. One note, though, you do need to provide your email address to download it, but you can always unsubscribe after. Anyway, I went through the checklist with my fiancé, and it was really useful. I was happy that most of our answers didn't surprise us, but a few did, and those led to important and constructive conversations. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Of course, even if you have a checklist, these conversations are hard because you don't want to entertain the possibility of infidelity ever happening. It's almost worse than talking about death, since everybody will die someday, but not everybody will cheat on their significant other. Dr. O'Sullivan understands this discomfort. We cling to the concept of exclusivity. And I think because it does worry us, we have difficulty understanding that your partner can be attracted or connected to someone else and not mean that you have been abandoned. And so many combinations of relationships can tolerate, you know, my feelings for someone else doesn't mean I care less about you. If you think about your siblings or your family relationships, we never question that. But in our closest intimate relationship, we have like this stranglehold on our partner. And don't you dare, you know, even look at someone, even someone who you've had a long relationship with in the past, you know, forget it. Absolutely forbidden. And, you know, this is, it's the deal breaker issue again. Right. And when it comes to that deal breaker, I mean, what do we know about the success of relationships that have had a violation and continued. And I mean, I guess the relationships that stopped just aren't are, are no longer successful, but uh, maybe the well-being of the people involved. Do we know anything about that? Yeah, there, some relationships can survive it. It's not an inevitable breakup, but but the couple, if it is a couple, usually have to go through some pretty hardcore counseling to establish the trust once again but they sort of put themselves right back into the same scenario, which is, and we've now reinstituted the rule that we will never, ever, ever, ever be attracted to or act upon attraction to anyone other than each other. And, uh, you know, it's like, okay, let's try it one more time. But some people can successfully do that. Many people report that they just would not be happy in a relationship where they couldn't absolutely be sure that they're the one and only, you know, for life, forever. But of course, we don't have relationships for life and forever. We have one and onlys for now, <laughs> but we tend to shift and relationships change frequently enough. We're, we're just having a hard time having a hard look at 
why we're so inflexible on this point. Yeah. Seems like just something we don't want to don't want to think about the possibility of. No. Deeply uncomfortable for so many people. And I I probably count myself amongst them, depending on the day, maybe. (laughs) Dr. O'Sullivan is a big proponent of couples facing the fact that temptations happen and we need to have plans in place in case a rule gets broken. As she wrote in a 2018 article for The Conversation, quote, Monogamy is difficult to maintain. Sure, it's easy enough at times when your life is devoid of temptation. But unless you and your partner live in isolation in a cottage in the woods, there are no guarantees that an attractive other will not emerge to lure you away and challenge the sanctity of your relationship, end quote. Uh, this is the part where the Twitter meme would say, stairs in quarantine. So in your conversation article, in your article for the conversation, you had this this thing at the beginning saying, you know, if all of our relationships, we were just alone in a cabin with our significant other for months on end and we never saw anyone else, then there wouldn't be any problem and we wouldn't have to worry about monogamy. But that's not how the world is. Well, that's kind of how the world is right now. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, uh, and I wonder... With all of these COVID engagements, myself included, actually. Oh, congratulations. What, <laughs> thank you. I mean, you know, what do you think about that? Do you think that maybe maybe some people aren't getting the real world experience before they, you know, they hit the road? <laughs> That's a perfect question because during COVID, we have been assessing crushes. And for people in established relationships many of whom have crushes. Uh, They add that little spark to the day, the nice person you see at the coffee shop, your trainer, the person at work, who knows what. What were people doing during lockdown? Those people with a crush, like the people who could count on seeing someone that they found attractive, even if they never communicated that attraction. And we have found that that level of attraction, which is quite normal and common, is fine and fun and no big deal. It's only when you get to the tripwires of communicating it or trying to elicit attraction back. And so we've been assessing this. We've had a hundred couples keeping track of their interactions with an attractive other. They kept diaries for four weeks. And we find that people, a lot of people, a third of our sample anyway, are reaching out to their crush online. Ooh, is that, is that good or bad? I can't, I mean, you're, you're actually initiating contact in a way that you weren't before, right? Well, if we don't know, we will find out. But I think what has been so, so interesting about this whole pandemic is just how desperate we are to connect socially you know we all thought oh wouldn't it be fun to work at home and not have to go in and do the commute it's interesting how desperate some people are to connect and to feel you know awake and alive through their connections with others so we think actually it's it's mostly reaching out it may not be someone in the same city even and we don't have a good before and after so we don't really know and we'll have to check down the road, but it is kind of intriguing how much was going on. We need to face facts. Crushes, temptations, and infidelity happen. 
if they can happen when we're locked down away from other humans in a global pandemic, they can happen anytime. And they don't necessarily mean the relationship is rotten and needs to end. If we can face these possibilities head on and really talk about them with our partners, that might keep everything from exploding when the unthinkable happens. Because after all, we thought about it. Thanks for listening. Taboo Science is written and produced by me, Ashley Hamer. The theme was by Danny Lapotka of DLC Music. Thank you so much to Dr. Lucia O'Sullivan. You can find links to her studies, her articles on the conversation, and everything else in the show notes. I highly recommend following her on Twitter because she periodically posts calls for volunteers for studies and surveys about sex and relationships, which is pretty cool. Maybe someday you can contribute to this body of knowledge. Also, I have a request for you. Podcast guides say you should only stick to one call per action per episode. So here I am calling you to action one time. It would be incredibly helpful if you could leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. Believe me, it matters. I will definitely read a couple on the next episode. Well, that's it for me. The next episode is going to be epic. Like, never in my wildest dreams did I think there were experts in this subject, and I got two of them. Stay tuned.